Welcome to the Business Intuition Podcast, the place where you can learn to trust your intuition to make business decisions without having to meditate for hours, wear crystals, or give up on coffee or wine. You don't have to leave your IQ at the door. Embrace intuitive intelligence to create a business that lights you up and finally experience the success that you deserve. Welcome to another episode of the Intuitive Revolution in Business. Today, we are doing a book review, and the book that we are talking about is A Blue Ocean Strategy, which has been published by the Harvard Business Review Press. Before I do the review of the book, though, I have a very special announcement. We have another kind of episode now on the podcast, starting, I think, the week of the 19th of September. I will be having some biz conversations with Katie Allen um, as a sort of business buddy, podcast buddy. And it so happens that she also has a podcast, so her audience will be able to listen to the episode on her podcast as well. That's very exciting as far as I'm concerned, because I was um, I have been wanting to... Um, add a little bit of spice, a little bit of conversation other than just an interview with people. Because, I mean, I do enjoy doing these uh, solo episodes and I do enjoy enjoying the interview, but I think a conversation about business is what this podcast was missing. So look out from, uh, and I'm opening my planner for the podcast uh, right now so I can tell you exactly when. Chat with Katie, business chat with Katie will start on the 19th of September. If you have any questions about business that you'd like uh, Katie and I to discuss, then email me at ange at theintuitiverevolution.co.uk so that um, I can uh, put your question on our list. Uh, if it's a question that's not uh, that's more intuition rather than business, then uh, I will um, address it in the Q&A. Our next Q&A is going to be on the 17th of, oh, oh actually, no, 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 that's not true. We have a Q&A next week, but the topic has already been uh, uh, discussed or, sorry, determined. So uh, the next Q&A is going to be on the 17th of October. So that's my bit of housekeeping. I also want to tell you that I run a powerful planning masterclass this morning it's planning with your intuition by connecting to the energy of your business so if you would like to sign up to receive the replay um i will be putting the link in the show notes uh underneath this episode uh, sorry i don't do show notes on my website like other people i just do them inside the app so you should find inside your app a link to sign up to the masterclass. Don't delay because I will only send the replay one more time. Um, and that will be, we're Monday the 5th today. And I will send the replay one more time on Saturday the 10th. So you have five days to sign up to receive the replay of the masterclass. I've made a an offer at the end of the masterclass. Um, there's only one person who can purchase that particular service package so um, if you're intrigued why not sign up and also find out uh, the masterclass really what we did was um, 
take uh, I took everyone through a guided meditation to connect to the energy of your business so that you could be shown the number one goal you should be focusing on between now and 2022 so that you can finish the year in style. Um, right, so that's the special announcement. Blue Ocean Strategy. The whole idea behind the book is that uh, businesses uh, are able to break out of the red ocean of competition. And you can see the imagery is about shark infested waters. It's a bit gruesome, I believe, but to get into, um, you know, to have a specific strategy that can take you out of these waters and to make competition completely irrelevant. Okay, so that's the premise of the book. Every book has a premise. And so the book goes on to define what is an, a blue ocean strategy and then uh, how to uh, work on your own. It's a very detailed book. It's written by two people who are from a business school, I think in France. Um, I would say it's a little bit jargony. So I struggled with it uh, at the start. And I really felt like I was pushing a little bit uh, through treacle. However, there was a couple of examples where they have used existing companies' strategies to illustrate their points. Um, I won't uh, res uh, you know, summarize, summarize the entire book because I think it's a bit too much, but I'll give you the bits that I feel are the most interesting. Now, the, the actual word strategy, and that's an interesting starting point from the book it's actually influenced by the military because it's the military that initially has strategies and of course it drags with it the whole energy of war competing who's going to win there's a winner there's a loser etc etc this is still very much the spirit of the book and i need to say that i don't believe there's competition now obviously for more traditionally traditional business especially business that are in um in the Manufacturing of commodities, yeah, competition is very real. You know, one soap against another, one shampoo against another, whatever. You have to have a defining um, elements that make people buy your product rather than someone else. <clears throat> but I believe that for those of you listening to this podcast who are more likely to be in the service-based industry, uh, maybe in something a little bit more niche, um, the notion of competition uh, is not as important because even though for example you might have thousands if not hundreds of thousands of life coaches in the world there is only one of you and and if you do your marketing properly if you have a good strategy the right people will find you and they will know right away that you're the flavor for them that you're the right person for them especially if you share enough about your backstory and about your personality and all that stuff. And that's why I often talk about the fact that I was a lawyer uh, that now teaches intuition, because that makes me very different from you know traditional tarot readers. Um, I know businesses inside out. I've, I was actually in the area of mergers and acquisitions. So <clears throat> I know about you know shareholders agreements and joint venture agreements and all sorts of things that um, most psychics and teachers of intuition don't know about. So <clears throat> I have a different flavor. Uh, but they were also explaining that it's not just the word strategy. You know, the fact that, and I hadn't even thought about that until I read the book, chief executive 
officer. The word officer comes from the military. Headquarters come from the military. Front line comes from the military. So there's a, an awful lot of um, military um, vocabulary that is used by companies when they talk about their business strategy. Uh, and it, it, it all creates the fake um, idea that there are limited resources, that there are limited num number of clients. And in a way, it's interesting that even though this book still sits in that sort of mentality, they talk about a way to break away from all that and to create a completely new territory. So part one talks about uh, what is exactly is a blue ocean strategy? Part two talks about the, the nuts and bolts of how to do it. Now, the one of the main examples they give, it's not the only one, is the Cirque du Soleil. And I really, really like that, the fact that they use them because uh, you wouldn't necessarily consider the Cirque du Soleil as a traditional business. But if you think about it, the entertainment industry is an industry where you know people have to make money and it's it, there's a competition, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know if it's the Cirque du Soleil that inspired them to create their blue ocean strategy or the other way around, um, but I, I really like that this is an unusual example. They also make a very good point that, you know, how many new industries are here today almost taken for granted that didn't even exist 50 years ago, right? So. Blue Ocean strategy or what they're talking about is creating those new markets, those new products. And I can think of so many different ones, but in particular, um, you know, mobile phones, um, uh, Bluetooth technology. Um, and I, I'm sure I can give you uh, many, many more. Even computers. Uh, I don't think computers, uh, personal computers existed 50 years ago and certainly not in the shape and form that we have today. So I suppose Bruce strategy is the capacity to create or reinvent a market, okay? And they do say in the book that Bruceans are constantly created. Um, delivery services is one that has really, really changed uh, because uh, of Amazon, for example. Right, it does say though, and they've studied 108 companies that 86% of launchers um, have only an incremental improvement of the red ocean market space, whereas 60% uh, and, and offer uh, only 39% of profits, because, whereas 40% of launchers into blue oceans actually create 61% of profits. So, Right from the bat, right from the start, blue oceans can be seen as uh, markets that offer a much better profit um, profit margin, I suppose. There is superior performances, but of course it demands a level of risk. Now, I found it really interesting that in the book, they talk about the fact that you shouldn't use intuition to go after a blue ocean, and that can all be done by actually um, analyzing the existing market. And I agree with that to a certain extent. But I've actually realized reading the book that my offering is a Blue Ocean offering because, and I'll explain to you as an illustration of their book a bit later on, uh, because I offer something that's very unusual for the market. 
uh, and there's definitely a demand for it. So um, the mention, of course, the fact that once if you're in the red ocean, uh, price is the most um, common uh, thing that companies fight on. Um, and that in order to move away from that competition on price and from becoming a commodity, blue oceans are the way forward. So they kind of analyzed if there was a specific industry or a specific type of company that was more likely to succeed in a blue ocean strategy. And they came to the conclusion after the analysis of 30 different industries that there are no typical profiles, okay? Blue ocean um, companies can be old or young, they can be attractive or unattractive industries, or they can be big or small. Uh, the consistent pattern, though, is what they called value innovation. And uh, here I need to hold up my hand and say, I made the mistake of buying this book as an audiobook, which means I couldn't see their value innovation picture that they keep commenting on. So it's taken away part of, I suppose, the learning for myself. So at least I can give this nugget to you. If you're going to listen to this book, if you're going to read this book, don't use the audio version because you'll miss out on some of the graphs. Okay. So the approach of the Blue Ocean strategy, it's that you offer a leap in value, which is different apparently from innovation. And that enables you to literally leave the competition behind. So there is both a differentiation, differentiation, I couldn't even say the word, from your competitors. But the, the cost doesn't need to be higher. It's the profit that is better. So talking about Cirque du Soleil, uh, what they show... So Cirque du Soleil, in case you don't know them, I I don't know them very well, but at least I know what they stand for because it's in French and it means the circle of the sun, the circus of the sun, sorry. Uh, they apparently ignored competition. They didn't try to offer more than the, their competitors uh, or compete on price. What they did, they combined the tradition of circus with the tradition of theater and they left out three aspects of the business that other people did in their uh, industry that were actually really expensive. They didn't use animals. They didn't have any of the circus stars that were going in the rounds that cost a lot of money. And they didn't have three rings um, to have three different um, things happening in the venue at the same time. So this enabled them to shift um, the circus act into a different arena altogether where the clowns were more sophisticated, the tents were more sophisticated, the seating was more comfortable. And so, and, and also there was a storyline for each of the acts um, um, that's added some intellectual richness to it as well as music and dance. So they were able to charge more than regular circuses but not for a bigger value because actually the cost didn't increase, it decreased compared to other circuses. So that's that's pretty good value innovation for sure. Uh, but it, it required for the Cirque du Soleil to look at the industry with a new pair of eyes and to challenge what their competitors were doing. 
you literally redefine the rules of the game, okay? So for Cirque du Soleil, no animal acts, and that's something that was absolutely given for any circuses. And they're actually apparently really expensive to run, but at the same time, they're also becoming less and less popular with the public because there's the aspect of mistreating animals and people have more and more ethical issues with it. I certainly had, even when I was a small child. Um, there is a belief that going into blue oceans is too risky. But what the authors highlight, and I think they're right, is that there is no such thing as a riskless strategy, right? In order to succeed, you have to take a level of risks. But they do say that you can actually analyze existing data and there are four guiding principles that can help you to do that in order to create a blue ocean, by, whereas um, still minimizing the risk. The next example that they used, and I'm going to share this as the last example because I don't want this episode to be too long, but it's the uh, case of the Casella Wines who launched a, uh, a wine called um, Yellow... Gosh, I can't even remember. I wrote it down somewhere. Uh, let's see. Um, I can't find it. Yellowtail, sorry. So this... Um, they, they start by describing what the wine industry is, um, especially in the U.S., because they did the study around U.S. sales. Um, a third, uh, two thirds of the sales are Californian wines and the rest are wines that come from Italy, Spain, France and South America. But in the U.S. market, 70 percent, 75 percent of the wine is sold by the top eight companies and all the rest is, is sold by a thousand six hundred. So it's very competitive. Uh, they compete around the same things. Of course, there is high quality wine, medium and low, just like for cars or other things. But it's not, they, 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 they managed and they did their strategy in about the same way. So the way that they got more sales was through price, awards, prestige, complexity of the taste, and variety of the grapes. These were the key factors that created the value curve. Apparently, Casella Wine, which is an Australian company, completely changed the parameters. And instead of that, they focused on the simplicity. And they wanted to sell to people who weren't necessarily drinking wine at that stage, that were maybe drinking more beer and cocktails, and who... Um, didn't want to have who found actually wine intimidating and that and that was quite interesting because i do find wine quite intimidating um so they they propose a four action framework four questions that you can ask to challenge the industry strategic model the first one is which of the factors that the industry takes for granted should be eliminated the second one is which factors should be reduced far below the industry standards. The third is which factors should be raised well above the industry standards. And the last one, which factors should be created that the industry doesn't even offer yet. Okay. So that's quite a powerful way to uh, look at, uh, at an industry with critical eyes. And maybe we should look at the coaching industry together at some point. Um, I want to keep this episode fairly short, though, so I'm not going to do that during this episode. But I, 
every week when I do a podcast episode, I create a specific post in my free group, which is called the Intuition Revolution, sorry, the Intuitive Revolution for Ambitious Entrepreneurs. Find the post about the podcast and let's continue the discussion. I would love for them to do that with you. So the yellowtail wine was heavily criticized by the industry but loved by the public because it eliminated the tannins, the oaks, the complexity, and even the need to age the wine, okay? So it made the rules of the competition completely irrelevant. It created it as a social drink, not as a wine. And apparently it's the fastest growing brand in both Australia and the US wine industry. So it's, it's um, it has actually come as the number one imported wine in the US, um, surpassing France and Ital Italian wines. So I think that's that's phenomenal. And even Californian labels, right? It's easy drinking and it's fun and adventurous. So, right. Well, I'm not pushing the alcohol here. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't make me say what I don't say. I'm not at all into the uh, drinking, um, you know, um, I suppose culture. Uh, I actually most of the time don't drink alcohol at all. Um, maybe with a meal, a nice nice wine like fine dine or something like that. So what the uh, Australian company did as well is that it reduces the range to only two wines and then it scrapped the jargon altogether. And to be honest, Jargon is always something that has rattled me, including when I was a lawyer. I refused to use jargon as a lawyer and always focused on words that I knew my clients would understand. Because who wants to make their, uh, their clients feel stupid, honestly? Right. It, um, it went further because it also um, used simple fonts, lowercase, and it has a very distinctive yellow color, whereas most wine bottles go for darker uh, colors such as like burgundy or black or, or something like that or even just plain white but I don't think there had been apart from I think there's um there's one wine I think uh, that I remember has a, a, a yellow label uh, if it's not Castilla del Diablo or something like that anyway so the idea is to eliminate reduce raise and create that's the four uh, elements that we've we've looked at up to now. Um, so I think I'm going to talk about why I believe that I've actually created a Blue Ocean with my services as a, an intuitive business mentor. And that's because I, as a psychic, I only work with businesses. Uh, I also don't teach my clients to hone their psychic gifts uh, when I do my VIP packages because I don't think it's necessary. And my tagline, and tagline uh, having a, uh, an impactful tagline is one of the elements. So there's three main elements to create a blue ocean. There's focus, divergence, and tagline. So my focus is business only as a psychic. My divergence is that I don't teach people to hone their psychic gifts. And my tagline is that I am going to teach you how to use your intuition in business without having to meditate, wear crystals or yoga pants, or give up on coffee or wine. That actually ties in with the example I mentioned before. So that's kind of funny. Um, 
Right. So uh, there is um, this this three part criteria that I just mentioned: focus, divergence, tagline. Okay, that's the litmus test. Test. Uh, part two is about how to formulate a strategy, and it comes with um, several paths. Um, but first, you need to reconstruct market boundaries. Um, focus on. Um, all of the buyer groups, look at the scope of the product, um, change the emotion, um, the, 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 the focus of the industry from emotional to functional, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, he's actually, uh, they, the authors, sorry, there's two of them, broke down into six paths. So I'm gonna just list the paths quickly. One is to look across at alternative industries. So apparently alternatives are broader than substitutes. And the example they gave is, um, for example, for um, personal financial advice, uh, there are substitutes, um, that's financial software, um, having an accountant or pencil and paper. That's things that you can use instead of each other. Um, Whereas for alternatives, and they give a different example, it's the cinema and restaurants. They actually have the same objective, which is to enjoy a night out, but they are actually um, not comparable. They can't be substituted for each other. Um, so that's, that's the exercise that you're asked to do, is to look at alternative industries. Path number two is to look across strategic groups within industries. So um, you have several um, groups of companies that will use similar strategies, either on price or on performance. And, um, and I mean, they give the example of Mercedes by BMW and Jaguar, who are on the luxury end and who have been actually tackled by... Um, I, another car that gives the same functions, but at a much lower price. The example I like the most in that in that part of the book, the, that chapter, was the example of Curves, which is a fitness club that was apparently launched in 1995, and that grew mostly through word of mouth, which is in in, in an already saturated market. And the reason why it grew so fast is that. It, um, no men were allowed. There are no mirrors in the um, Curves gym. They got rid of most of the machines, the food, uh, the spa and the locker rooms. And it's just 10 machines in a circle. So people actually can chat and connect to each other rather than that feeling of isolation. And all this has enabled them to charge a much uh, lower price. Um, but yet still have all of the advantages of a gym club. Because the uh, apparently there's only two factors that make people go to the gym as opposed to watching a video at home. One is the accountability, which is missing at home. And two, the time, which is missing when you go to the gym, because you have to have the time to go to the gym, uh, do your class, get changed, come back. And that cuts out a lot of the market. So Curves managed to group all of it and to create a blue ocean. Path three is to look across the chain of buyers. So um, 
the buyer is not always the user. And also there's a distinction between corporate buyers and retailers and end users, obviously. So I think the example that stood the most out for me is that they say that usually in the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry, it's doctors or influencers that are targeted by the industry in terms of marketing. Uh, and what one company has done um, called Novo, Novo something, gosh, I'm so bad with names, uh, Novo Nordisk, sorry. So they're a producer of insulin. And instead of focusing on doctors, uh, for which the criteria would be how pure your insulin is, they focused on the end user. And because the end users found it difficult to use or even sometimes embarrassing to have to inject themselves with needles outside of their homes, they created a pen uh, that has actually cartridges that people can use on the go. So instead of looking at doctors, which is the traditional buyer in the chain that uh, pharmaceutical companies would normally um, focus on, they focused on the end user and apparently they created an amazing blue ocean as a result. Right, so that was path number three. Path number four is to look across complementary services and offers. So um, I think they talk about the fact that in order to go to the movies, for example, very often people need a babysitter. So there's apparently a company that has offered um, um, cinema, a cinema that has a, a sort of uh, child care included in it, which means that people are more likely to go to the cinema because they don't have to think about finding someone to look after their kids. Path number five is to look across functional or emotional appeal to buyers. So for some products, um, the, the reason to purchase this is completely rational and in some others, it's emotional. And they gave the example of Swatch, which is a company that I don't hear talking about much in the UK, but that was super big in Paris when I lived there. And it's, um, it's plastic watches that are a fashion statement. So traditionally, the industry of watches is more of a rational choice. But in the case of Swatch, they made it a fashion statement. Okay. On the opposite side of things, and talk about body shop that used to be an emotional purchase, but body shop offers products that are functional with no nonsense. You can see how you can come across the range in that way. Uh, let me make sure that I haven't forgotten a path. I think there's six paths all together. We've just looked at path five. Path six is to look across time. Uh, so it's a way to look at trends and see the increase in value to customers, the impact on the business model. So we want to look at trends that are decisive to business, that are irreversible, and that are, have a clear trajectory. Um, and the example they give that I find interesting as well is the example of Apple who launched iTunes, because at the time it did, uh, there was a huge level of piracy, um, piracy sorry, in uh, music downloads because of Napster. And iTunes saw a niche or a blue ocean where it could create an online music store where it would be easy and you could actually buy song by song rather than buy the whole album, which was something that was really annoying everyone. Plus, they created a format for the sound um, units called AAC, which is a much better quality than, than the MP3. So 
they have, as a result, 70% of the market as a Blue Ocean offer. Right, so uh, from here, I'm going to depart a little bit from the content of the book to talk to you a little bit about um, how this book has been um, you know, received by the market uh, and the, the plus and minuses of this book. I would recommend that you read it anyway. I think it's an interesting read. Um, you can get something from it just by understanding industries and having an idea. Uh, I don't think it covers the service industry much. So um, that would be perhaps my, uh, um, where it's lacking. But in a nutshell, it was, um, the Blue Ocean strategy has been like earmarked as a recipe for unconventional success through the value value innovation model, okay? That makes competition irrelevant. Uh, the Blue Ocean generally is an unknown market. And I believe actually that what I offer, the intuitive piece can really help people spot these blue ocean opportunities without having to go through all the hassle of, of looking at a whole industry. Uh, it's been, it was published in 2005. It stayed, it sold over 3.5 million copies, which is really impressive, has been marked by a best, as a bestseller by the Wall Street Journal and translated into 43 million, uh, 30, 43 languages. <laughs> Forbes has said of it that it's one of the 10 business trends for 2013. I know it's a bit behind, it's nine years ago. The criticism is that it only has one true case study, the Nintendo one, which you can read about in the book, that there were no control groups uh, used and that it's almost like they use their strategy to uh, pinpoint certain examples that fit into their, um, their theory. Uh, but it can't really be identified as the true course of success. Plus, they don't take into account at all the brand and the communication. And we know that when you start selling certain things, um, branding and communication is essential. So I hope you found my book review interesting. I will not hide from you the fact that I found it a little bit tedious, this book. Uh, I still find uh, value in reading it. That's why I'm still recommending it. And I'll see you again next week with another episode. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Intuition Podcast. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you haven't done it yet, write a review so that more listeners can enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to join my free group on Facebook, Business Intuition for Female Entrepreneurs. And go on to my website to download my free workbook on the four steps to trust your intuition in business. My website is theintuitionrevolution.co.uk.